two rules of thumb that make co-living work. Co-living will work if two qualifications are met. One, one bedroom rents need to be above $1,200 a month. If they're below $1,200 a month, the increased operating expenses of co-living destroy the economics. It doesn't make any sense. Two, you have to reasonably be able to live in the location without a car. Because if you have to park one-to-one per bedroom, blows the economics up. doesn't work. So as long as those two criteria are met, co-living can make sense. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. At their core, Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate investment firm, but beyond that, they are committed to technology and a world-class culture, which leads to a very forward-thinking mentality. Do you want to stay in the know on all things Fort Capital? Be sure to follow Fort Capital on LinkedIn and sign up for the quarterly newsletter on www.fortcapitallp.com. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. Brad, welcome to the show. Chris, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited about today. We were just talking about, I saw Brad speak in 2019 about Common, so I'm looking forward to kind of what's happened over the last few years. How does somebody that's from a town of 5,000 people in Hampton, Arkansas, get into co-living in some of the biggest cities in the country? You know, just a small town boy who found my way to New York City. You found me. (laughs) Well, look, it's an experience that a lot of people in my shoes have of moving to a big city. And when you're there, uh, and this was, you know, a number of number of years ago for me, you live with roommates. That's the first experience that many people go into a place like New York, D.C., L.A., San Francisco, and increasingly Sunbelt, Middle America cities, too, with the rent increases we've seen over the past 12 to 18 months. They're living with other people. Yep. They're sharing an apartment. That's a real experience for 25 million Americans who share a home or apartment with someone they're not related to. And so for me, yeah, I moved to New York City in 2008 and had two weeks to find a place to live and ended up sharing an apartment with someone I met on Craigslist. Didn't know anyone in the city. And that's a pretty universal experience for people in that seat. When did we actually kind of brand it as co-living as this thing when we could kind of agree that this has been going on for a long time? But when did we actually kind of formalize it as maybe an asset class or an industry that people were going to put a lot more attention into? Do you know? You know, it's we resisted the label co-living for quite some time. We started Common in, in 2015. Okay. And back at that time, the majority of co-living spaces were small. They were very, I would call them values-oriented in kind of a positive light, but they were very communal 
not cults per se, but very much intentional communities. Hmm. And we always looked at common as fundamentally utilitarian. This is about housing affordability. This is about giving people a place to live. And community is a piece of that, but it's not about ascribing to some specific set of shared values. Eventually, the co-living moniker took over everything. I think WeWork had a lot to do with that. They were very much into the communitarian aspect of it. So probably around 2016, 2017, it became a thing and we resigned ourselves to the moniker. Yep. All right, let's get through some kind of basic questions before we kind of dive into the meat. But let's define what does common do? What do y'all, what do you do for your customers? And then I kind of want to define the second thing, which is what is the definition of co-living? Well, we are a, uh, best way to think about common is we are a property management firm and a design firm that decided to make our lives really, really difficult for ourselves <laughs> by serving a really unique segment of the residential real estate market, which are people who live with roommates. It is important to note that only about half of what we do is co-living as we define it, which are shared apartments. We also do a lot of more conventional third-party property management. We think about our business first and foremost on an account level where we have deep relationships with clients, mix of real estate, private equity, family offices, a handful of institutionals. And you know, increasingly, they bring us into a wide swath of what they do in the multifamily sector, both co-living assets as well as increasingly more conventional properties as well. So, but co-living is where we built our brand, where we built our name, and it's certainly a very unique piece of what we do as a company. And on, on the co-living side, let's just kind of dive right into kind of management agreements and kind of how that works. So I think when a lot of people think about it, they think, oh, it's co-living, maybe Common would go lease 100 apartments and then kind of manage those apartments, kind of sub-rent them back out. And then we've talked about property management. Is there a direction which you're headed as a company or which maybe the industry is headed? Or is there very much a lease model and very much a management model? There are two very different models. We started back in 2015 with a lease model. It's really all we knew. Starting in 2017, we shifted to a management model, mostly because we were doing larger assets. And when you're doing a 20-unit building, a master lease makes a lot of sense. When you're doing a 200-unit building, a master lease doesn't make much sense. Mm. And a management agreement and as we've, is the way to do it. And as we've grown, those management agreements have really... I would say, merged almost completely with a traditional multifamily management agreement. And co-living as a, as a business, as a model, has merged with multifamily development, where majority of the co-living that we are building at this point with our partners is actually part of a mixed co-living asset, where it is perhaps 80% conventional studios, ones and twos, 20% co-living units, shared apartments with roommates in mind. So we are a full stack management business with a really hybrid approach of co-living and conventional private apartments. And these developers and builders, when they come to you, are they coming to you at the conception at the, when you're dreaming of the project or are they coming to you after something's been built? Or do you prefer to get in while it's being planned so that it's planned in a way that is conducive to both conventional and co-living? We do all the above. I would say the majority of what we do right now, we're signing about 2,500 new units 
per quarter wow. under management contracts. And that's swung a lot between mostly existing buildings we're taking over and ground up. That swung a lot over the last 36 months. Yep. Today, I would say about 80% of what we do is ground up. We're signing it up when it's still dirt. Usually what we'll do is one of our partners will come to us when they've identified a site and they'll say, hey, we're trying to get this to pencil. Add another 50 bips to our projected cash on cash. And we'd like to incorporate some co-living into it. And we work with them on the test fits, floor plans, underwriting to really see how co-living can be an accelerant, can improve NOI, and also differentiate the building from other assets in the area. So that's a majority of what we're doing today, particularly given you know, where construction costs are, where rent growth is, um, is looking at, looking at new deals. All right, let's keep going on that thread for a bit. So everybody that's developing a building at the end of the day, it's got to make money. And I'm in the property management business, so I can say this, this isn't a shot. Property management is typically looked at as like the least sexy part. And I think y'all are changing that. It's not easy to do well. What are y'all bringing to the table when, why is a developer coming to you as opposed to going to more of a traditional property manager that we've thought of for the last 30 years? Like, what are the things that y'all are doing for developers that would give them that extra 50 bips? Yeah, well, usually we get inbound. So first of all, I would say our existing clients come back to us because they like working with us. Yeah. And that's the easiest source of business we have, our existing clients coming back to us. Yep. When we get new clients, they're usually coming to us because they want to do something creative and something different. And they need that thought partnership of, you know, maybe they're looking to build micro apartments. They're looking to introduce a new product to their market. Co-living is a product that we see a lot. Obviously, we have a ton of experience with that. We have more experience with that than anyone. But we also get brought into live workspaces sometimes. We have a brand that we're really excited about called Millie, which is family-oriented buildings in urban centers. So really oriented to people with young children. So there's stroller parking in the building. The units are really designed with families in mind. So we see a lot of developers, a lot of owners who say, hey, I want to do something that's not just your typical apartment building, typical unit mix. Want to think about it differently. Coming to us, we're also pretty small. We have 7,000 units under management today. We have another 15,000 or so signed and under development. So all of our clients get a lot of attention from the executive team, from myself and from others as well, because we are small and can give that of dedicated attention. And when you say creative and different, is that obviously that's in the management once the building's built. But when you're working with the architects and you said that y'all are also a design team, yeah, like just walk me through a little bit of that experience, because for anybody that's on here, that's their traditional multifamily developer, they probably have their same architect, you know, they're stamping out the same floor plans and they're just kind of trying to fit them inside of a whatever geometric shape the land and zoning allows. What are some of the things that kind of happen during that planning process that just are not traditional to common conventional multifamily development? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, we're never, we're never the architect of record on any project. Yeah. You know, we're in too many cities, we're in too many places. You know, we really do need that local expertise. Yep. And one decision we made pretty early on, which was, I think, critical for us, was that we were not going to be a developer ourselves. We were not going to, you know, compete against our, who are today our clients, because that local expertise 
that de- that's developed over years, over decades, is just is just so critical. So for us, it's about applying more universal learnings about from the portfolio that we manage and from the assets we've seen, we've designed, and other assets that we walk on a regular basis to inform what are some things that architects, that developers should be doing in the projects they're developing today to improve renter experience, to optimize NOI, and to ultimately have a successful and fun outcome. I mean, these projects should be should be fun as well. Yep. So examples of that might be if someone is looking to incorporate, you know, different unit types, micros, co-living, what, how, how should they think about dimensions? How should they think about unit mix? How should they think about amenities? In co-living, for instance, a lot of the insights that we're drawing, they're, they're, they're deep in the weeds. It's not always the fun stuff. It's how many you know, gallons of hot water do you need per bedroom? Because if you're designing for roommates, that's a different answer than if you're designing for a family. Mm-hmm. How big of a range do you need? depending on how many bedrooms you're building in the unit. And then you have some very creative developers that we work with who are really bending the definitions of what even is a unit, Mm. creating kind of massive common areas within the units, building upwards of five bedrooms per unit. Obviously there, that's a tight partnership between the developer, the architect, local local zoning and land use (laughs) council. But we, we do have some really fun ones. And increasingly, we've started working directly with cities on this too. So we won an RFP from New York City in partnership with uh, L&M, which is the largest affordable housing developer in New York, to build uh, 250 or so units of affordable co-living mm-hmm. in East Harlem, really kind of bringing back early 20th century housing typologies, which I'm super, super excited about, just from a historical standpoint, as well as from an um, you know, impact standpoint. What was going on in the early... You, you got to expand on that. What what are some of the things <laughs> we're bringing back that was popular back then? Yeah, totally. It's really a, a residential hotel okay. concept. And by hotel, I don't mean short-term stay. I really mean smaller units that open into kind of shared kitchen and living areas. The units have private bathrooms. They're larger than your typical co-living bedroom. So they are really a kind of standalone micro-apartment without a kitchen it's you would call this an sro unit in a lot of places sros have a lot of negative connotations because as the housing of last resort you look back in the early 20th century a lot of americans middle-class americans who were moving to cities lived in residential hotels in many cases in multi-bedroom units but they ate in shared kitchen facilities and there's in my view a place for those kind of typologies in expensive dense cities and there are a number of governments, jurisdictions that are open to bringing those kind of typologies back, and we're excited to partner with a lot of those cities. Yeah, you're right at the intersection of maybe one of the biggest issues in America right now, which is housing and affordable housing, and not just that, but getting a lot of it built and quickly. It's certainly interesting. You touched on just for a second, and I know it's different by jurisdiction, zoning and just kind of land use. And, and when you were mentioning, you know, some of these developers are doing 80% conventional, 20% co-living. Are you finding that most developers have to have some type of variance or some type of special use case that runs with the land that allows for co-living? Like what is the thing 
that makes it this other category? Is it the amount of bedrooms? Is it just the total density that the project brings in? Like what's the trigger in most of these jurisdictions? Yeah, totally. So the way we typically do co-living, and I'll leave my examples of working with cities and you know the example I gave in East Harlem to the side, since that's a bit unique for us. But the way we usually do co-living is it's simply a unit that is designed and operated with roommates in mind. So this is anything three bedrooms and up, depending on the developers, the lenders' appetite, and depending on the local zoning. It fits within conventional multifamily zones in every city as long as you abide by a few guardrails. The first guardrail is certain cities have unrelated individuals statutes. That is, you can't rent to more than a certain number of unrelated, or rent a unit to a certain, more than a certain number of unrelated people. Some cities, that's three, some it's four, some it's six. Some cities, particularly West Coast cities, don't have these rules at all. So you have to abide by that. The second is you have to make sure that you're not accidentally running an SRO. So in most of our co-living arrangements, varies a bit by city. Everyone in a co-living suite is on a lease together. And, you know, we are bringing them onto that lease together. So in that framework, you're not renting by the room. It is not an SRO. And you're able to fit within a multifamily zone. And that's pretty universal across the board. There are certain cities, D.C., for instance, where we are able to rent by the room. And when we can do that, we will do that. Makes things a little bit easier just from a logistical standpoint. So it does vary a lot. We have to consult local land use council in every city uh, we operate in and provide that advice to our partners when they're looking to build co-living. What's an SRO? What's Single room occupancy uh, dwelling. Okay. It's kind of an old, old school housing typology, usually associated with kind of housing of last resort. Yeah. And yeah, please, thank you for calling me out on my jargon. I, I can slip into that sometimes. That's okay. So housing of last resort, basically rooming house, boarding house type stuff. Yeah. Usually small room, private bathroom, no kitchen. Got it. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, CREmodels.com. That is the letter C, the letter R, the letter E, models.com. If you aren't familiar with CRE Models, they are a real estate financial modeling and due diligence firm that specializes in bringing an institutional process to small and mid-sized firms who are raising capital. Because of their extensive experience with large clients, they really make it easy to look professional and polished when raising debt and equity capital. If you have a substantial deal pipeline, use CRE Models for expert due diligence, lease abstracts, financial models, physical due diligence, books and records, and more. They can handle any property type from multifamily to commercial to self-storage or really anything. With CRE Models, we send them all the financial info we have on a deal and they will review and tell us what is missing. This really allows us to focus on the deal structure and we can trust them to jump in as they're an extension of our own firm. You can get in touch with CRE Models at CREmodels.com or call them at 201-252-7487. When you talk to them, remember to ask about their 360 degree analysis team and the real estate technology integration services as well. And now back to the show. I know you're not a, you know, you didn't make the rules. You're just trying to follow them. 
But why is it that a lot of jurisdictions are against lots of folks with different, let's just call it different last names living together? Is there something that happened in history where it was a problem then? And now as we sit here today, we're kind of dealing with a rule that was historic that I would imagine there's people that have opinions on whether we should still have it or not. Or is there a good reason why a lot of jurisdictions care? You know, I look at a lot of that as, as above my pay grade. Yeah. That, as you said, I don't make the rules. You know, there are a lot of rules around housing that come out of the mid-century where in cities were attempting to fight density. Cities were attempting to enforce kind of a traditional single family, even in places where that doesn't make a lot of sense, such as New York, Philadelphia, Boston, through zoning law. You tend to see the strictest form of these rules in places like Boston that have a large student presence. Mm. And there, it is often about preventing students from taking over large houses in single-family neighborhoods yep. and renting them by the bed. It does end up catching more young, professional-oriented co-living in many cases, too. All right, I'm looking at y'all's website, and um, New York, LA, Washington, DC, San Francisco, Chicago, all these things have quite a bit in common, very dense urban cities. Can we talk a little bit about, from your opinion, what makes a great market? And then maybe just given the kind of, as y'all are evolving as a company, are you letting the developer take you into markets or are you telling the developer these are the only markets that we'll manage in? Yeah, it's obviously, I'll, I'll answer a second question first. I mean, it's obviously a push and pull. Okay. As I said earlier, we are account-led and account-focused. Yeah. That is, we build deep relationships with developers. We build, that has to be based on trust. And we have a number of clients that we have great relationships with who come to us and say, hey, you may not have ever heard of this market or thought you were coming to this market, but we're building a 250-unit building and would love to bring common to that market. And that's a conversation we're willing to have. Mm -hmm. Whereas we rarely say, pick a city, we're going to plant a flag there. Yeah. That's tough for us to do because going to a new city and then having to sell a new client and convince them that we can operate in a new city, that's tricky. Yeah. So usually what we end up with is us being brought into a city by one particular client that we have a track record with yeah. and then growing from there, winning new business from there once we've established ourselves in that market. Got it. So to kind of move into the first part of your question, you know, we got our start in New York City. Co-living certainly from 2015 to 2020 was very associated with big, expensive urban coastal markets. Yeah. But, you know, the world has changed a lot and you're seeing rents in many Sunbelt markets that actually make co-living make a lot of sense now. Yeah. You know, our rule of thumb Two rules of thumb that make co-living work. Co-living will work if two qualifications are met. One, one-bedroom rents need to be above $1,200 a month. If they're below $1,200 a month, the increased operating expenses of co-living destroy the economics. doesn't make any sense. Two, you have to reasonably be able to live in the location without a car. Okay. Because if you have to park one-to-one -one per bedroom, blows the economics up, doesn't work. Yep. So as long as those two criteria are met, co-living can make sense. 
there are way, way more and more areas today that meet those criteria in places that one may not expect. Think a number of cities in North Carolina, in Texas, places like Tennessee or Nashville, New Orleans, three or four cities in Florida. None of those made sense five years ago. You're starting to see more developers go in and say, hey, I'm going to build co-living in Orlando. I'm going to build co-living in New Orleans. And I think that's really exciting and you know, a way for those developers to get an edge in those markets. And is that purely because of population growth in those markets, or is it because those markets have achieved that kind of $1,200 hurdle or both? I mean, obviously you need both things, but is there one that's like maybe more important than the other? Or they they're both have to be in harmony. I think those are, they're, they're interrelated. Yeah. I mean, you've seen population growth in those markets, which has driven rents up dramatically. That has kind of passed through the, the first hurdle. I think remote work has also been a big enabler. Mm. If someone is working from home, they don't, the, the pressure to have a car is lessened. And we see a lot of people, you know, we have a ton of properties we manage in Los Angeles, for instance, where our tenants don't have cars. And that really changes the economics of development when you're not building quite as many parking spaces. Even if you can decrease the number of par- the amount of parking you're building per square foot by 20%, massively transformative to economics if you only have to go down two levels in a new development as opposed to going down three levels. Yep. I don't think listeners that aren't in the real estate development world fully understand how much a development is predicated on not only the amount of parking, but the cost of parking. I mean, you see developments get killed all the time because, you know, you can't afford to build the parking structure. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so you just said it, but I'll just kind of double down on it. The remote work is what's making these cities more viable. That's kind of the leading catalyst. When you think of like a... uh, do, do y'all have some way, and I'm sure you do, of like a walkability score or some type of technology that y'all use or software to go? Orlando wasn't on the radar five years ago, but things have changed. Are there certain things you're looking for? When I hear of 250 units and you kind of have to be able to live without a car, assuming that we take the remote work, which is a big catalyst, out, what other things are just going on to make that city work? Yeah. And- you know, there are a lot of places where we use technology, but evaluating whether a, a given site is walkable, that is one where ultimately you just need to get on the ground and you need to walk it. Yeah. You need to walk the neighborhood and really understand what is going to be the lived experience of people in this building if they need to walk to the metro or they need to walk to the light rail or they need to walk to or they need to bike on the street. Yeah. And you don't have to assume that everyone does that. You know, we do have some developers that are going in and building without parking and that in the right location can make a lot of sense. But even if you're saying, "Hey, we're going to assume that this building is 70% parked as opposed to 100% parked," can make a big difference on the economics. So can you get comfortable And can you get your lender comfortable with the idea that 30% of the residents in this building are not going to have cars? We've got a lot of data that shows in comparable areas 
that this happens. And the data goes a long way in saying that, hey, we have experience that when we build 50 beds of co-living in an area that may not seem super transit accessible, that only 35 people there are going to have cars. Yeah. And then let's actually walk the site. Let's dig into it. Let's understand who the local employers are. If there's a big hospital five-minute walk away, well, that could be a no-brainer that decent chunkier residents are going to be nurses. They're going to be medical residents. Mm -hmm. They're going to be other people working, administrative people at the hospital, and half of them aren't going to have cars. Right. So it is really about understanding a local environment. Are the developers or the property owners, or maybe you as a management company, do they provide any like zip cars or things that people can can use to get around or everybody either Ubers or takes public transit? Yeah, we it's it's all situational. It's all about understanding the context. And you look at a given site and you say, okay, what's what's lacking here? Is car share going to be useful? Is a bike share going to be useful? Do you want to, you know, you obviously want to understand the shared mobility ecosystem around there. Or do you do you need a grocery store in the building? Is it a food desert? It's very, very similar to the process you go through with programming your amenities in the context of the neighborhood. Mm. So you can't program your amenities in the abstract. You need to understand what's in the area and say, what's lacking? What's the gap? What's missing? If I'm my target audience, if I'm, if I'm a resident of this building, if I'm a 26-year-old medical intern living here, what am I lacking? What's really annoying? And so you think about that from an amenity standpoint, and that could help you with both your amenity programming and your retail programming. But you think about that as well, as well from a transportation standpoint yep. and what transportation options are lacking. Yeah, as, as you kind of get more specialized into these types of buildings, I would just imagine this is probably a dumb statement, but the ability to understand who the customer truly is. And like you said, boots on the ground, learn the neighborhood, learn the city. It's not as much about just, you know, looking at population growth, et cetera. It seems like the great developers are becoming way more intimately involved in understanding who right. these people are. And certainly that's, I would assume, a big job of common. Absolutely. And I, I do want to acknowledge that the bulk of this work comes from, the local work comes from our development partners. Yep. They're the ones that really have the depth of local expertise. Yep. A lot of what we're doing is coming with pattern recognition and a playbook from other places we've been, other projects we've done, projects we manage, and saying, hey, here's some things we deployed on this last project. Here's how they worked. And here's another project we manage in a different city that has kind of similar conditions. Yeah. And here are some things we've done to address that or to take advantage of that. And the, the local expertise, I mean, that's why we partner with developers. We're not, we're not one ourselves is because, you know, we, we, we operate in, in 15 cities today. We, you know, have projects under development in almost in, in 35. That's a blessing and a curse. It's a lot of things you have to know, but it's also a lot of data points mm. that you can bring to bear when people are trying to make a decision or trying to come up with a creative answer around a project. I'll ask at a high level, and, and if, if you can share, great. If not, that's fine, too. Just if you think about a little bit about the revenue model, 
it's one thing to go in and manage an existing building. You take over management, common starts making money. But when I hear about these development projects that often, you know, one of the big themes in development is the entitlement process, the, the pre-opening process has been, just keeps getting longer and longer and longer. When does common actually, if I'm a developer and I come to you, am I signing a contract with you? Am I, am I getting, is common, am I paying common throughout the life of pre-dev design, kind of all the work that goes on there? And then it turns into a different contract once we're actually managing tenants day to day? Absolutely. So we have two different types of contracts. We have technical services contracts mm -hmm. that come on the front end, pre-development advisory, underwriting and test fits, things like that design advisory services. We actually do full interior architecture as well. So that's technical service agreement that happens on the front end prior to opening. Once a building opens, obviously a management agreement. We are somewhat unique among design firms in that we only design buildings that we will manage. Okay. Obviously, it's a, it's a soft commitment given that we're not signing a definitive management agreement until the building is about to open. Yeah. But, you know, there has to be that that intent there. You know, we're not, we, we don't go out and design buildings for, uh, with third party, other third party managers. And then on the management agreement, once the building's open, do y'all charge like a typical property management would? Like what is common going to bring to, is there anything ancillary, more things that more services that common is bringing to the table that yep. if, again, if I'm a developer going, I need that 50 bips, and you would tell me, well, look, we have this, 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 and this that we can also offer as managers. What are some of those other things besides kind of your baseline management? Yeah. So first and foremost, you know, the majority of the value add is have split into, I would say, two big buckets. The first is design insights, including, you know, whether those are co-living or micro layouts, amenity programming, things like that. But the second is, is how we manage. We tend to be very central, I would say centralized with the way in which we manage and try to get the benefits of both local expertise, which I've spent a lot of time talking about, yeah. but also central back offices. It is my personal view that the way we manage properties tends to be a little overly focused on just a bunch of people on the ground doing stuff. Whereas you look across other industries that have operationally intensive models and they're heavily using back offices and automation to take work off the plates of the people on the ground mm. and really let the people on the ground focus on strategic decision-making and focus on things that require an on-the-ground presence. So, from a management standpoint, we tend to take a lot of things off the plates of our field teams, including, for instance, calling leads. So all leads are, you know, people who apply to live at a common building are called out of a central back office. You know, it lets us call everybody within 15 minutes who applies and is qualified to live at a common building. All lease paperwork, administration, credit checks, background checks, that all happens out of a central back office. These are all our employees. We don't outsource anything to a third party, but it is it does add a lot of efficiency and frankly, higher leasing velocity when you're able to do those things. So happy to get more into that. Some of it gets kind of technical, but just overall philosophically, we like centralizing a lot of the administrative work 
that happens at a property level. Yep. All right. Let's kind of move in just a little bit more. I think it was popular on Twitter, but it's something that that I want to know. I want to focus a little bit on just kind of the nuances of co-living. My only experience as a co-living tenant was in college. So let's just kind of talk about who is, you mentioned that, and maybe Millie and, and families is just a totally different kind of product line, but who is the target customer of somebody that is a co-living target? Is it obviously affordability matters, but but what else? Age, demographics, how they work, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, totally. So the, the median age of a co-living resident at Common is 28 years old. So they're a little bit older than a lot of people expect. And their median income is around 70000 a year. And one nuance that is probably the number one thing people mistake about co-living is that they view it as an extension of student housing when, in fact, it's an acceleration of class A multifamily. Ah. So what I mean, here's what I mean by that. It's not about people who immediately get out of a student housing experience and say, I want to keep doing that. <laughs> because the people who are getting out of student housing, they're generally moving back in with mom and dad. <laughs> Rather, what it is, is someone who's 28 years old, young professional, maybe on their second or third job, they're making 60000 70000 a year. They can't quite afford the studio or one-bedroom apartment, but they want to live in the luxury building. They want to have high-quality amenities. They want to be in a good location. And they're moving out from either a crummy Craigslist apartment where they're sharing with roommates or they're moving out of mom and dad's. They're coming to cope. That's the audience. Yep. And so all of our design philosophies, the way we approach things, the way we manage the tenants is very much rooted in multifamily, not in student housing. Okay. And that's just a really important nuance because it, it informs a lot of things about how we do our business and how co-living works. And it's, I think, trips a lot of people up if they think about it from a student housing standpoint. All right, I'm going to try and ask this in the least dumb way possible. Is the typical tenant thinking about, I'm going, this is a way for me to live more affordable and I could care less about the other people that I'm living with. They're kind of thinking in their head is it's still my one bedroom. I am sharing some space, but it's, but I'm, I'm there for me. Or is the typical tenant going in order to have affordability, I got to be willing to be friends with all these strangers. Does that make sense? So based on our surveys and assessments and everything we've done. Yeah. 90% of our tenants are coming to us for the convenience and the affordability. Yeah. They're like, this is my bedroom. All I need is a bedroom, private bathroom, a bed, a desk. I'm going to spend my time at work. I'm going to spend my time out. And I only want to pay 1200 a month versus 1700 a month, 1800 a month for a studio. Only about 10% are coming in and saying, I really want to be part of a community. And for them, that's we do have community programming, do a lot to bring them in and give them that. Obviously, that's easier at larger buildings than smaller buildings. But the majority of them, they're really looking for something. They're looking for affordability. They're looking for convenience. And that's what we're providing to them. I love it. And 
that's a, and there are different co-living models out there. There are some that really, really play up. Like X Social is another co-living. You know, they're they're spun out of PMG. They're very focused on the the, the community, the post student housing experience. That's not what we're serving. That's not what we're doing at Common. But there are different co-living models out there. Yeah, ours is more young professional, more affordability oriented. I'm not asking you to speak on a different business model, but I would assume somebody that does want community is maybe less worried about the affordability standpoint, and they're more interested in just, you know, I want people to interact with. Right. And, you know, that in those instances, you usually have a younger tenant. Yeah. Their parents might be paying the bills for them. It's somewhat of a different product, different targeting, different audience. Yeah. Um, I mean, the most, some of the most profitable co-living models out there, and, and we don't do this as much, they're targeting international students. Once again, not something we do a lot at yeah. Common, but you see some very niche plays near college campuses branded as co-living targeting international students that do, do very well. All right. You said something a second ago. You said they want to show up. They want a bed. They want a desk. They want all these things. So I'm assuming that at least in the co-living spaces, Common is furnishing these units. Is that the same for conventional as well or just in co-living? In co-living, it's all furnished. Okay. In conventional, we do have some furnished, but it's um, majority, majority kind of traditional unfurnished. Okay. And I'm assuming if, if I'm moving into a furnished unit, just getting to, down to the kind of economics, I think you know what I'm about to ask. Is there a separate deposit put down for furniture? I'm assuming the furniture that's being ordered is, you know, resistant to a little more wear and tear than your typical furniture. Like, how does the furniture play into the business model and what's the tenant kind of held accountable to? Yeah, totally. So we've, you know, it was obviously a worry when we started the business. We do keep FF&E reserves at this point, we have a lot of data around what those what those reserves should be. And we've been operating and doing this for seven years. Mm. So we've seen have a few cycles of FF&E replacement now. But in general, remember, we have a young professional audience. You know, these are 28, 29 year olds, people in their their early 30s don't see the level of kind of furniture <laughs> destruction. Yeah. You know, you obviously have wear and tear, but you don't see the level of destruction that you probably would in, in on the student side. Generally, people are respectful. But, you know, you got to keep reserves. Each piece has its own expected lifetime. And, you know, that's kind of part of the process for us whenever we're underwriting a new deal is holding those reserves, not just at a suite level, but at, at an amenity level as well. And holding the reserves, that's at the ownership level, right? So they're buying right. the furniture for the property and then you're giving them guidelines of we would recommend reserving this much for replacement or uh, repair. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. All right. This will be a little bit of a fun part of the podcast. It's just interesting to me. And, and again, we've, we really have kind of nailed down who the target market is. But I kind of want to know how four strangers live together and maybe some of the things that y'all have seen probably it's like a farmer's insurance commercial that you've seen everything. <laughs> All right. I come to you. I want to lease a space. Do I know who the other roommates are? Do Is there like a match fit? Like, how do I know that I'm going into a place that I can be comfortable with strangers? Yeah, totally. So we made what was back in 2015 when we started the business, 
a fairly controversial view, which is you are effectively renting a room. You do not have an ability to vet your roommates. If you don't like your roommates, you can transfer to another room. But one of the reasons we provide shared kitchen and bathroom supplies, we do weekly cleaning of the common areas within the units, we furnish everything, is to limit the surface area of roommate conflict. So that's kind of the first line of defense. Is it's just less to fight about. <laughs> because, you know, you're not fighting about cleanliness. You're not fighting about whose couch is it anyway. You're not fighting about splitting the bills. We do that for you. So there's just less, there's less surface area of conflict. If you really don't get along with the people you are there with, you can transfer. And, you know, we make that easy and straightforward and existing members have preference over units that open up or, you know, units in new buildings releasing or, or what have you. So we do have that have escape valve, which, which, which helps a lot. But there's, there's no matching because if you're doing this right, you're 96 to 98% occupied at all times. You don't have a lot of availability and you're not going to hold a room open. You're not going to hold a room vacant because you're looking for a certain match. And so we thought about this from the perspective of a, of a stabilized building and said, this is going to get crazy if, you know, we have the artist suite over here and the hacker suite over here and, you know, the night owls over here and the morning bird, you know, it's going to get nuts. We're going to drive ourselves crazy and we're going to drive vacancy up and we're probably making fair housing violations out of it while we're at it. Yeah. So we said, no, solve it on the back end, not on the front end. And that was the right call and has, has, has served us well. But I'm not going to lie, our, our job as a property manager is probably 10 times harder than the job of a typical property manager. And it's not the median case. It's not the 90th percentile case. It's the 99th percentile case. The that really, takes all the time. That, that takes that, that really where you're, you're, you're getting the brain damage. And not to take a fun part of the podcast and make it not fun. But when you're talking about, you know, mental illness, drug addiction, things mm. like that, that's where, you know, it really hits the fan and where this really gets hard. It's not, it has nothing to do with like, oh, these four people just don't get along. That's easy to fix. It's the, it's the long tail hard cases that really, really make things challenging for the team. I know that discrimination or anything of that is a, you know, is, is a big part of leasing housing. You mentioned just kind of like the drug problem. It's one thing to rent a bedroom by yourself in a traditional unit and do all the drugs you want by yourself and you're not really in anybody's space. It's another thing to be in a common living room where you're kind of doing it and, you know. So I guess my question is, is there any additional screening that is legal or anything that a co-living operator would do to say, like, we have to do an additional layer of screening than you would due to the fact that these people are going to impact, you know, folks because they're co-living or is it same screening process and you just hope you do your best? We do as much screening as we are able to do. Yeah. And I don't want to say we push the boundaries, but we believe we have a strong case of being able to do full criminal background checks everywhere, including county level records, full history and everything we're able to pull yep. and be pretty liberal about turning people away because people are sharing space. And we believe we have a strong case for being able to do that. When I move in day one, do I get like a 
Common is not a babysitting business. You did say it's 10 times harder. But do it, when I move in, am I kind of given the rule of like, look, y'all are four adults. You're going to police yourselves. Here are best practices for how to treat other people. But it's not like if, you know, I'm fighting with little Timmy down the hall, I call my property manager and say like, Timmy won't leave me alone. Like the issue, at what point does it go from being a issue in the room to common needs to get involved? Is it safety and, and violence? Is it like kind of legal issues, but everything else must be policed inside the unit? Yeah, it's, we do consider our, our, our members, they are adults. We treat yeah. them as adults. <laughs> we do exactly that, that we say, hey, here's, here's our general guidelines. Here's kind of code of conduct, how we think about being a good roommate. Yeah. But, you know, we're not your RA. That's not our job. You know, that said, things do get escalated to us. Obviously, anything that touches safety, that becomes our business. Harassment becomes our business. And, you know, if someone is unwell for various reasons, I don't mean unwell like they got a cold. Yeah. That unfortunately becomes our business. Yeah. And so, you know, it does magnify a lot of the challenges that you face as a property manager when you are getting involved within a unit, which avoid in most cases, but in some cases, certainly we do, uh, we do have to get involved. I would say, you know, across our, we have 75, today with 75 buildings under management around 7,000 units, you know, at any given time, there's a dozen escalated cases across common yeah. of places where we are getting involved in some respect within the unit, whether that's an eviction, whether that's a member that is really not being a good suite mate point that we've had to get involved. Yeah. So it's not overwhelming, but those 12 cases do take a lot of time, and we have a dedicated team within Common that handles them. It's furnished. I'm assuming you all provide utensils and kitchenware and things of that nature. Do you allow tenants to paint their walls, hang stuff up on walls, kind of make it their own? Like, what can't you do once you move in? Is it pretty much bring your suitcase and a TV and some bedroom items? But are there is there any place where it's like, okay, you can't actually bring these things in that you would otherwise be able to bring into a traditional one bed unit. Yeah. I mean, we're pretty open with what the tenants do to their bedrooms within reason. So hanging art, fine. You know, you have to return it to, it works like a normal apartment. You've right. got to return it to the state that you leased it in. Right. But, you know, we're not going to stop you from bringing furniture into your room. Obviously, the living room is a shared space. Yeah. So we do stop members unless everyone in the suite agrees from bringing furniture into, into, into the living room. But if they want to add furniture to the living room and they all, all four of them, five of them get together and say, you know, hey, we'd really like put a, put a pool table in here. I don't know. <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm not, not a pool table. I'm not trying to send zingers. It's, I'm just like fascinated by the idea. Nice. You know, it, it, it's, you know, we've been doing it for seven years. We figured a lot of this stuff out, but things, uh, things continue to, uh, continue to surprise us every single day. Yeah. No, you, it's like the farmer's insurance commercial. All right. One more, just kind of from a, a personal experience. I have a buddy that did it and, uh, he said that he had a, a co-living, you know, four, four roommates and a lot of cultures like cook stuff that smells, but it's food. They mean they have great intentions. They're very nice people. And that, and when I was asking him, I was like, what are something that is like a typical disagreement? And he's like, it's actually not people fighting. It's, it's things that could cause odors or things that like, I can smell your food from my room 
or it, they burning incense. Who knows what it is? How do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't police what they cook as long as what they're cooking is legal. So, <laughs> yes, there's always odors, noise, things like that. Yeah. These are adults. They got to work it out. If yeah. they can't work it out, they can transfer to another suite. All right. I'm not trying to ask singers. I I, I just, no, I, I, I had to ask yeah, that one. Figure it out too. All right. I think you mentioned it th- this at the beginning, but just real quick. Is it single bedroom leases or everybody's on one lease or property to property? City to city. City to city. So it really just depends on the city. So like New York, for instance, everyone is on a lease together. DC, you can do single bedroom leases. So those are two examples. We have to work with local zoning and land use council in every city we go in into to understand how to do it. But we haven't found a city yet that co-living just does not work in. Yeah. Okay. So just one thing on that. In college, we were all on one lease and, and that was really so that they didn't have to chase down four of us. But if I'm living with the three strangers who I don't know and I'm on the same lease with them and you know, three of us pay our rent and one doesn't, are the other three responsible for that person or how do you deal with that situation? No, so we, we, don't, we don't enforce joint and several liability. Okay. So there's, I'm happy to get technical if you want. I know it's one of the questions that came in on Twitter of yeah. how we do evictions yeah. within co-living. It does vary a little bit based on jurisdictions. The overall high-level way to do it is cancel the lease, sign separate agreements with the three people who remain paying. They can continue living there as long as they pay. Bring action against the one non-payer instruct the sheriff if the sheriff does have to show up who to remove where to go <laughs> we obviously have to accompany them there when that person's out re-execute the lease yep so there is high level a way to do it that we've used for a number of years in these situations so it's it's not fun it is more complicated but it can be done yep all right let's go through a few twitter questions and then we'll we'll bring it home staffing I said you you automated a lot of back office. You're providing a lot of strategic decision-making authority at the property level. Does this require additional true uh, human beings on on site that wouldn't ordinarily be there or it's it's pretty typical? Yeah, so apples to apples, we're actually probably fewer staff on site. So when we're brought into, say, a, let's say, and, and by apples to apples, I mean, Let's say we're bought into a traditional 300 unit building Yep. versus a more conventional property manager. We're usually eliminating probably one on-site role, usually either one of the leasing agents or an APM type role, because a lot of those activities are done off-site. So we are able to, you know, on a 300 unit building, maybe generate 30, 40K in total savings between payroll and contract services, maybe another 20K in savings on marketing, depending on how rich their marketing budget is. So we are able to generate some savings there just through the centralization of it. In some of these buildings we do, you know, particularly you have a set of buildings that were maybe built 20, say 15 to 20 years ago mm-hmm. that have certain units that are way too big, two and three bedroom apartments that are north of 1,200 square feet. Sometimes it makes sense to convert those to co-living depending on the location, depending on the rent, depending on the building. So we've done that in some cases. And then on top of that, you get the payroll savings from centralizing a lot of these back office functions. So you are able to bump NOI quite a bit at some of these buildings. Um, But from a staffing standpoint, other than those changes, 
uh, it's similar to what you would see with another property manager. Okay. How do you advertise for co-living? Is it traditional list a unit on apartments.com or Zillow, or is there other channels you use for this specific type of need? Yeah, so we get a lot of traffic organically from our own website, common.com, just because we're so associated with co-living and with this, this way of living, and we've spent a lot of time and effort building our own brand. Uh, but beyond that, Craigslist, yeah. apartments.com are both you know, great sources of leads. We do some social media as well. You know, we get a lot off of Instagram, off of Facebook as well are, are, are great sources. Shared housing is also a pretty viral product in that if people like it, they often know people who are moving to the city. Mm. And, you know, you see a lot of these posts on Facebook of like, hey, I'm moving to New York. Where should I live? And someone says, hey, check out Common. You know, I'm living there. My buddy's living there. My cousin's living there. And so it just, it is, you know, particularly given the shared nature of it, it is a, uh, and the community nature of it, it is a viral product. Yeah. Most common unit configuration in square foot. It really runs a gamut. Our average is four and a half bedrooms within co-living. Okay. But that goes from our smallest co-living unit is three bedrooms. Our largest that you get to some units that are kind of, as I said earlier, bending the definition of what is a unit. Yeah. We have some 12 and 13 bedroom units. At that point, it is sort of a different housing product. Yeah. But it still works really well. There's just certain things you have to do to make that work. But it doesn't feel like you're living with 12 or 13 roommates. Yep. You know, it feels like you're living in a Old West saloon. We've talked a lot about new development where you kind of get to get things the way you'd like to see them from day one. Is it affordable to be buying a lot of the, is, is it, is it feasible to be buying a lot of an existing, call it 1990s vintage deal? Is there really a way to convert it to a co or at least some to co-living units? And if there is like, what has to be the case to be able to do some retrofitting to go towards a co-living model? Or is it just taking the two bedrooms and three bedrooms in the unit and just leasing those out as three one three one bedroom leases? Let's talk just a little bit about retrofitting. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen this done in a number of cases. It can absolutely make sense. You know, I would refer back to the criteria I had earlier, which are one bedroom rents have to be above twelve hundred a month. Yeah. And you have to reasonably be able to live in the building and, you know, have a productive and successful life without a car. So assuming those two criteria are met, then you really have to look at the layouts themselves. Yeah. And you can't really just say, hey, there's a three-bedroom apartment and it's 1,200 square feet, therefore we can convert it to co-living. You have to understand and say, okay, is that, does every bedroom have a, have a window? Because if you're, you know, you can kind of fudge it in a lot of jurisdictions and call it a three-bedroom apartment where one bedroom doesn't have a window. Mm much tougher to do that if you are renting by the bedroom. So that's one thing to look out for. Some units, you can actually add density. Some markets, that's, that's easier than others. We don't do unpermitted construction at Common as a rule. I think that's a very short-term game to play. So you actually have to be able to file a permit to add an additional bedroom to a room if you want to, if you want to go that route. But there are a lot of, you know, I don't know how much 90s vintage. There's definitely a lot of early 2000s vintage that would make sense to convert and, you know, operate as co-living. I would, 
one caution I would have is it rarely makes sense to convert two-bedroom apartments without adding a bedroom, which restricts the supply quite a bit. It's rarely accretive to do that once you add in the additional operating costs of co-living. You know, you only have two bedrooms. It's also a weird situation. You're kind of pairing two people together, whereas with a three-bedroom, with a four-bedroom apartment, the social dynamics actually work quite a bit better. Yep. Are you seeing anything just this just kind of came to mind? I mean, there's going to be a lot of dead office buildings that don't really come back, especially in the like in New York. There's there's obviously winners in office, but I think that that bifurcation is happening. You seeing any projects yet of people converting office buildings or at least is it being talked about like it kind of is maybe at a high level? Yeah, we're uh, we're, we're actually doing one. Oh, cool. And we're really excited. I think it opens uh, early next year, if I recall correctly. Yeah. It requires a certain type of building and it requires a certain level of creativity and patience in the sponsor to pull off a project like that. Yep. But, you know, I think we're going to see more and more and more of those as you see rental demand continue to ramp while people don't go back to the office five days a week yep. and demand for office space decreases. Yep. So I'm, uh, I'm bullish on those type of projects, but it's uh, they're tricky. Yeah. You know, obviously office floor plates don't map well. You know, they don't have a lot of windows in those interior cores. So you need to be creative. You need to be thoughtful about how to do it. All right. I'll kind of end it on uh, just kind of an open-ended question. Maybe there's something to answer. Maybe there's not. But is there any big needle movers in the private sector or the public sector that, you know, really are going to have an impact on maybe affordable housing or co-living? Like, is there anything on your radar that you're excited about that maybe the average listener just it wouldn't it, they're not thinking about yet well one thing that i think is not being discussed enough is the potential supreme court decision this summer on new york's rent stabilization law okay and you know right now it's really just being discussed kind of in in wonky new york housing circles mm -hmm. but we have a very conservative court right now and i think there's a non-trivial case that the opinion that they write may not just blow up New York's rent stabilization, but may blow up a lot of housing regulation, rent control, rent stabilization writ large across the country. We don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do, obviously. They haven't, that one hasn't been leaked, but <laughs> yes, uh, you know, I'm very, very curious to see the take that this court has on New York's rent regime. And to be and clear, they're trying what, to lift it? Yes. So New York in 2019, I believe, enacted a very strict rent, you know, or tightened the laws around the rent stabilization program, basically removing vacancy decontrol. And they were sued by a group of uh, rent-stabilized landlords. And that's working its way through the courts. And I, and I, and I believe this year, is, is hitting the Supreme Court. Mm. So I think it's been under-discussed in real estate circles, the impact that that decision has. Okay. All right, Brad. This Chris, has been great, man. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank uh, you really very enjoyed much. It. This is great. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Ford Capital LP. 
All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.